featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Geyer and I are pleased to welcome Paul Shapiro to ARZone. Since 2005, Paul has been the Vice President for Farm Animal Protection for the Humane Society of the United States. Prior to joining the HSUS, Paul was, for 10 years, the Founder and Campaigns Director for Compassion Over Killing, a group he initially began while still in high school. Paul holds a BA from George Washington University and has taught peace studies at the high school level. In an article in the Washington Post in 2003, Paul is quoted as saying that we often persuade more people by being friendly than by being hostile. Paul joins us today to speak about what he learned from 10 years in grassroots activism, the role of the HSUS in the animal rights movement, and how advocates and activists can be most effective for other animals. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining us today, and welcome to AR Zone. Thank you, Carolyn. It's an honour to be on with you. You're very welcome. Paul, you founded your own advocacy group at quite a young age, and that group's still going strong today. What were some of the reasons that led to your leaving the grassroots to join the HSUS, which is quite a large organization? It is quite a large organization. You're right. In fact, it's the largest animal protection organization in the world. And it was a difficult decision for me. I've seen the animal protection movement from a lot of different angles, both as a volunteer for many years and then running a grassroots group as a volunteer myself. And then once Compassion Over Killing started getting enough funding to hire people um, as an employee of a smaller group that became a national group and then now working at the largest animal group in the world. So I I feel like my perspective has been uh, different over the course of my career so far. And one of the things that led me to leave Compassion Over Killing to go to the Humane Society of the United States was essentially knowing that the platform that an organization like the Humane Society offers is so large, its brand is so favorable in the American mainstream, that it really deserves to have a strong farm animal protection campaign. You know, keep in mind, in the U.S., for many decades, farm animals were nearly entirely absent from the national agenda of the big animal protection organizations. And it's tough to think of it that way now because so many of them do have quite uh, substantial farm animal campaigns. But back then, very few did. And this was always something that was uh, painful to me because farm animals represent nearly all of the animals who we exploit as a species. So I was eager when Wayne Fasselli became president of the HSUS in the middle of 2004 and started talking with me about the possibility of coming over to wage, to create and wage a farm animal protection campaign. My colleagues like Josh Balk at Compassion Over Killing and I were uh, pretty convinced that we could do more good for farm animals via the platform of HSUS than we could with an organization that was at that time probably at least 100 times smaller. So in, in retrospect, now given that it's 10 years on, I think that it was the right decision to make. We've been able to wage and win some very important campaigns that we could have never done from any other organization, Compassion Over Killing or otherwise, and I hope to be there for many years to come. 
Paul, in her introduction, Carol mentioned an article in the Washington Post from 2003 about compassion over killing. I thought it was a, a, a pretty good uh, overview of, of the work that that group does and your role in it. In the article it says, and I'm quoting, By 2001, Compassion Over Killing had raised enough money for Shapir to take a salary. Three staff members are paid from 15000 to 21000 So my question is, I've read about some advocacy groups who say that they'll never have paid staff members and that they'll never accept public donations. They almost always um, say something like it's the animal's money. And so I'm wondering, given that the group that you founded did collect donations and did pay staff members, and now you work for an organization that raises and spends tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars annually, what do you think about the role of money in the movement and the um, legitimacy of people um, making careers out of the work they do in the movement? Uh, I wish there was more money available to wage animal protection campaigns, and I wish there were more people working in the animal movement full-time. The fact is that animal abusers are working full-time around the clock, and animals need people who can do the same. We need to be as aggressive, if not more so, about protecting animals as they are about profiting from animal cruelty. And so the fact of the matter is that when you look at the groups that are set up to advocate for the institutional exploitation of animals, whether it's the factory farming industry, the vivisection industry, um, circuses, and so on, they're all going at it full time. And animals don't, don't deserve less than that. They deserve more than that. So I'm in very much in favor of people uh, who can make a career out of animal protection to do it because it's what the animals deserve. Wayne Pacelli's salary is public knowledge. I don't want to know what your salary is, but it's you know he makes he makes a, a pretty good amount of money every year. Um, I suspect though that if he was running a for-profit organization that had an operating budget and staff and reach that the HSUS has, that he'd be making substantially more money in the in the private sector. Do you think that's right? Well, first and foremost, I do think that what you said is right, that he would be making a lot more money in the private sector. As well, I think that um, if you look at what his peers make, for example, the CEOs of other uh, similarly sized nonprofit organizations, he makes substantially less than they do, oftentimes, um, oftentimes even half as much as they do. As well, it's a matter of public record, um, as has been reported on, so I'm not you know, letting any cat out of the bag here, but, um, you know, the HSUS Board of Directors has been adamant about increasing uh, CEO's salary at HSUS despite Wayne's protests over it. And uh, they want to remain competitive in the marketplace to offer uh, somewhat comparable compensation plans for executives to what other animal groups and environmental groups are doing. So if you look at the way, if you look at the way Wayne lives, I mean, he and his wife live right now in a one-bedroom apartment in D.C. It's not like uh, he is living high on the hog, uh, and it's it's hard to um, it's hard to imagine somebody who makes more sacrifices for animals than he does. Uh, this is a guy who works around the clock. He's accomplished more for animals in the first five decades of his life than I, I suspect nearly any animal advocate would over the course of many lifetimes. And he is such an effective ambassador for animals that, uh, you know, he's 
um, doing such a great job waging and winning campaigns for them that the meat industry nearly singularly attacks him. I mean, right now in Washington, D.C., the meat industry is running ads throughout the city with his photo on them attacking him. And there's a reason for it. It's because they view him as a threat. In fact, there's a quote from a meat industry lobbyist that oftentimes gets cited that talks about how basically they have uh, the, the biggest threat that they face is Wayne Pacelli and HSUS. So I'd be less concerned about those type of issues than I would be concerned about whether people are effective or not. And there's nobody who epitomizes effectiveness in my mind more than Wayne does. Paul, could you please explain what are the fundamental goals of the HSUS and what's your role in the organization in trying to achieve them? Well, the mission of the HSUS is both to celebrate the bond between humans and animals and as well to confront cruelty. In other words, to confront the abuse that occurs when we break that bond. Humans and the rest of the animals on the planet share so much and we can mutually enrich each other's lives in such dramatic ways. And so HSUS, for example, is the largest direct care provider for animals in the nonprofit world in the U.S. We run more this large network of animal sanctuaries, wildlife rehabilitation centers, spay neuter clinics. We have our own veterinary arm that performs um, very large sums of free veterinary care in impoverished and rural communities, including especially on Native American reservations. But in addition to providing a vast amount of direct care for animals at our sanctuaries and rehab centers and so on, we also <clears throat> are engaged in legislative campaigns for animals, litigation efforts to give animals a voice in the courtroom, corporate campaigns for animals to give them a voice in the boardroom. And as far as my own role is concerned, uh, I oversee what's called the Farm Animal Protection Section, which is a team of the most dedicated people who I have ever met to tireless advocacy on behalf of farm animals. These are folks who wake up every day thinking, what can I do to make the world a better place for farm animals? And they're going out and waging and winning campaigns, whether it is campaigns to criminalize practices like gestation crates for pigs or battery cages for egg-laying hens or tail docking of cows or force feeding for foie gras, or whether it's getting entire school districts to implement meat-free Mondays, so they're going entirely vegetarian at least one day a week, um, and other efforts, too. I mean, just today, for example, um, I published a joint op-ed with the United Farm Workers, which is the organization that Cesar Chavez founded, about how the abuse of farm animals oftentimes goes hand-in-hand -hand with the abuse of farm workers on these dairy factories. So the reach is, is wide, of both this campaign and of the organization. And it really uh, speaks volumes about the need for animals to have an organization like this. You know, if you look, for example, at other social movements, let's say you look at like the gun rights movement, for example, they have an NRA, which is the most powerful group, the most politically influential group as far as the gun lobby is concerned. And animals need something similar. And HSUS is as close to it as they have right now. I would have suspected that most people would think that the HSUS, in a similar way to most other humane societies, is primarily concerned with the well-being of dogs and cats. But from what you've just said, that's not the case at all. Does the HSUS 
downplay for the general public what some might call its more radical agenda. <laughs> HSCS is very open about what it does. If you look at our logo, for example, it's a, it's a consortium of lots of different animals, not just dogs and cats, but uh, chimpanzees, chicken, a pig, a cow. Those are all part of the logo. And if you certainly if you go to our website, humanesociety.org, you'll be very, very crystal clear as to what the organization does. Or for our own members, if they get our member magazine, which is called All Animals, it's not just called Dogs and Cats, it's called All Animals, they can read about the campaigns of the organization. So, no, I don't think that's the case. I think that it's certainly true that um, HSUS, the lion's share, or maybe I should say the dog and cat share, but the lion's share of the organization's resources really do go to efforts that relate to dogs and cats, whether it's our, again, our spay neuter clinics, um, anti-dog fighting and cock fighting efforts. Um, although I realize co- uh, chickens are of course not dogs or cats, but it's part of the animal fighting campaign. Um, but HSUS also has some high profile efforts like its farm animal protection work um, that while maybe they don't take up the majority of the resources of the organization, tend to get a lot of attention because of these battles that are being waged between us and the meat industry. Paul, I read something, I think on Wikipedia, where Wayne Pacelli said something about the HSUS. And what reminded me was you said something about the NRA, and he said that he wanted to build an organization for the animal rights movement that was like the NRA. I think I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. And so... Within the movement itself, there's this idea that that the HSUS, because of I guess because of that quote or others like it, that the HSUS now claims to be an animal rights organization. And then of course there are people who say, oh, but they can't be an animal rights organization because they're really an animal protection organization. And so they're trying to, I don't know, dupe people within the movement into thinking that there's something that they're not. I've mm-hmm. I've always maintained that animal rights organization or animal yeah, rights movement. As a as a phrase, is kind of just a is just kind of a catch phrase. You know, it's like a generic right. term. It doesn't. Right. I'm wondering, is that do do you sense the same thing? I mean, is that or I, I do, uh, Tim. I, frankly, I do. There's a lot of people in the animal movement who are very sensitive about this topic. The words that you use in there, whether it's animal protection, animal welfare, animal rights. Uh, animal advocacy, they get very sensitive about it. But keep in mind, to the general public, these are all distinctions without a difference. To the general public, they all mean the same exact thing. Just like you said, Tim, it's kind of like a catchphrase. But HSUS usually talks about itself as an animal protection organization in order to avoid just getting involved in in that debate at all. At the same time, um, you know, look, the NRA is a very effective lobby for people who are interested in having guns, whether you agree or disagree with their mission to protect gun rights for people. Um, you know, you can't deny that they're very effective. They're extremely politically influential and animals deserve that. Animals deserve an organization that is politically influential and that lawmakers will be interested in listening to and will care about how they're scored on their voting records for our humane scorecard that the Humane Society Legislative Fund puts out, for example. And uh, we're not ashamed of that. We're very proud to serve as the voice of animals, whether it's on Capitol Hill, whether in courtrooms, corporate boardrooms, and more, because animals deserve a powerful lobby. 
They deserve the voice that they've been denied for basically the entirety of our country's history. I agree with a lot of what you just said then, Paul, but I'm actually one of those people that um, thinks that the language that we use is incredibly important. Um, just as one example, Mark Beekoff mentioned this in his AR-Zone interview last, I think it was last year, um, changing a sentence from what we eat to who we eat changes the entire dynamics of, of the sentence and, and the message that you're sending. Um, so I, I, think, I think that um, the difference between referring to a group or a person as an animal rights organisation or person and an animal protection organisation or person, um, I think there is a difference and I think that um, I think it can be confusing for people. I think people um, that, that, that are familiar, say, with the theories of, of Tom Reagan um, would probably not be supportive of, say, a group like the RSPCA here in Australia who right. would not um, be supportive of, of Tom Reagan's work necessarily based on their mission. So I think, um, although I, I agree with what you said, the general public don't know and don't care what the difference is, I think that's because perhaps we mix it up so much ourselves. Maybe. Uh, so I, I certainly agree with uh, what you referenced about Mark, and I think that anybody who you're talking to would recognize the difference in connotation between saying who or what in the case that you mentioned. Uh, I think anyone in the general public or in the animal movement would recognize that. I think in the general public, though, um, I love Tom. I think he's a wonderful guy. My guess is, is that not many people have heard of him or read his books and don't know the difference or quite frankly care what the difference between animal rights and animal welfare is. Um, but for the small portion of people who do know about him, people like us, I do think that it's important. And so I think that's why groups like HSCS oftentimes just avoid those terminologies and go with animal protection because it is more encompassing or maybe animal advocacy, for example. But so I, I agree that some words really do matter to the general public in the case like what Mark mentioned, who or what. In this one, I'm not sure that it's because of anything that the animal movement has or hasn't done on this that the general public isn't aware of the differences as much as I think that it's just not of interest to them. Yeah, and as I say, I agree with most of what you said. And to be honest, I've never actually heard anybody from the HSUS themselves refer to themselves as an animal rights group anyway. <laughs> it's, it's usually other people who are looking to find right. ne negative things and, and reasons to criticise the HSUS that do it themselves. So Yeah, I was going to say, I've, ne I mean, I've been yeah. there for 10 years. <laughs> I've never heard anybody say it either, but maybe, maybe there's a quote out there. I don't know. <laughs> out there somewhere. <laughs> Thanks. Paul, it's time for what we call the Ronnie question here at AR Zone. Ronnie Lee is one of the admins. He's a longtime supporter of AR Zone. Most people know him as one of the founding members of the Animal Liberation Front back in the 70s in Great Britain. Anyway, Ronnie likes for us to ask every guest, um, what is it that caused you to um, be who you are today in the movement, and why do you continue to do what you do on behalf of other animals? Well, I think for me, I was raised as an animal lover, but to me what that meant was that I loved my dogs. You know, my family, I was growing up, we always had dogs, and they were always from the animal shelter. And I'll tell you, I mean, I 
frankly loved my dogs more than I loved the biological members of my family at many times in my youth, which I'm sure is a a scenario that many people can um, identify with. But when I was 13, a friend of mine showed me a video. He had this VHS tape. That's how long ago that was. He had this VHS tape. And he showed me a video of what happened to animals on factory farms and in slaughter plants and in circuses and more. And I was just so horrified. I was just so uh, just really in shock and, and horror by what I was seeing. And as a result of that, I thought about animal cruelty as broader than somebody who might kick their dog or who might neglect their cat. And I started thinking about institutionalized animal abuse, and I started reading things like Peter Singer's work and more, and I recognized that there was an entire movement of people who were set up to combat this type of institutionalized cruelty to animals. Now, when I was growing up, if you love animals, people always say, oh, you're going to be a veterinarian, become a veterinarian. Well, I thought, I'll be a veterinarian. And then I found out that there are these people who didn't go to six years of medical school and, uh, you know, didn't, they were like me in that they weren't as scientifically gifted as people who go to veterinary school are. And they were still helping animals. And I thought, wow, that's what I want to be. And so I became a vegan pretty young. It was about 21 years ago um, when I became a vegan. And at that time, I didn't even know I mean, when I became a vegetarian, I didn't know that there was such a thing as veganism. And then I I heard about it and I thought, you know, maybe it was like like holding your breath. Like you could do it for a little while, but then you just die. Like I felt like if you didn't eat animal (laughs) products, you would just keel over after a couple of days. Um, But when I started learning that there are vegans and that they were perfectly healthy, I knew that that's what I wanted to do because I was interested in having a live and let live mentality toward other animals. And I preferred nonviolence. I preferred to have a personal policy for myself that I wouldn't, uh, I would try to, as best as I could, harm animals, try to avoid harming, harming animals uh, when, when I could do that in a reasonable way. So uh, that's how I got involved in the animal movement. And then, as Carolyn indicated earlier in high school, I founded this group, Compassion Over Killing, because there was no animal group in my high school. And from there, I, I started getting more and more involved working in the field. I worked at the Fund for Animals, which at the time was a national wildlife advocacy organization back in the late, uh, back in the late 90s, and then eventually coming to work for Compassion Over Killing and then to the Humane Society of the U.S. And then to answer the final part of that question, the reason that I do what I'm doing is because I want to lead a life that is as other-centered as I can, as opposed to a self-centered life. What I want to do is leave the world better than I found it. And I want to be able to say that the world was a better place because I had lived, that there was less suffering and more happiness in the world because I had lived. And the vast universe of animal suffering that we're causing is so enormous. And there are relatively speaking, few people who are devoting themselves to trying to reduce that universe, trying to give these animals a voice. And the whole notion of one group bullying another group because they're stronger than the other group, because they can take advantage of the other group and bend them to their will, has always been so offensive to me, whether it's a kid bullying another kid in the schoolyard or whether it's 
uh, somebody taking advantage of a cat or whether it's more institutionalized cruelty like what we're doing in the meat industry has always been very offensive to me. And so to the extent that I can have my life serve uh, in some capacity to try to reduce the amount of violence and misery that we're inflicting on the rest of the animal kingdom, I would love for my life to serve that way. Paul, why does the HSUS support legislative campaigns? Some animal advocates believe them to be um, a waste of time. Why do you believe those advocates are wrong? Well, the meat industry would love for us to stop waging these campaigns because the meat industry fears them enormously. If you read the meat industry's trade publications like I do, the things that they seem to be really concerned about are legislation, litigation, undercover investigations, and corporate campaigns. These are the things that seem to be uh, of concern to them the most. The fact is that social justice struggles, whether it's the anti-slavery movement, the women's suffrage movement, civil rights, and so on, almost always have campaigns to advocate for public policies because our laws are a, a reflection of our, of our societal morals. And if you have a country that doesn't have laws that protect animals from cruelty, it sends a signal that it's okay to commit cruelty to animals. And so whether it is laws that criminalize locking animals up in tiny cages for their whole lives, or whether it's laws that, for example, ban the use of elephants in circuses, animals deserve legal protection. You shouldn't be able to abuse animals without repercussion. And the fact is that for too long, some of the most egregious cruelty to animals has remained perfectly legal, and we are going to do everything that we can to ensure that that deplorable situation comes to an end. Do you think it's equally important to educate humans on respecting other animals as well? Um, The reason I ask, obviously, people don't always obey laws, Um, but if, if... they have a certain respect for other humans or other animals, then they're much less likely to be wanting to harm them or to oppress them. I think it's very important to help people understand that animals deserve our respect and they deserve our compassion. I'm very much in favor of efforts to make sure that that happens. At the same time, you, know, you, you wouldn't go and find the civil rights movement saying let's not focus on passing the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act because we just want to persuade the people who won't let blacks uh, sit at their lunch counters. We just want to persuade them to let them go sit there or that we shouldn't try, for example, in the anti-slavery days, you know, imagine people arguing let's not try to give slaves rights or let's not try to ban slavery, but instead just try to persuade slave owners to do the right thing. The fact is that laws are important, and moral persuasion campaigns are also important. I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's imperative that we engage in them and try to raise societal consciousness about the treatment of animals. But animals deserve legal protection, and um, that doesn't mean that everyone in the animal movement needs to be waging campaigns to garner legal protection for animals. Not even I, I don't believe that at all. But some groups should be doing it, and HSUS right now is doing the most of it, and I hope other groups will do it as well. I mean, many are also doing it, but right now, um, really the perhaps the most politically influential group in, in Washington, D.C. in the animal movement is HSUS, and I would love to see other groups becoming 
uh, influential there as well, more so than they are now. But in short, yes, I'm all for education, and I'm also in favor of criminalizing cruelty to animals. Thanks, Paul. Could you please talk about the purpose of the Rural Development and Outreach Program from in the HSUS? And if it's true that HSUS has farmers who kill other animals for food as part of their staff, could you explain why that is, please? Sure. So first, let's put this in context. Um, HSUS conducts a number of undercover investigations at factory farms, slaughter plants, and more. And these have resulted in slaughter plant shutdowns, meat recalls, criminal animal cruelty convictions, and more. And the meat industry's response to these exposés has not been to try to prevent the abuses that we're uncovering from happening, but rather it's been to try to prevent people from finding out about these abuses in the first place. The way they've done that is trying to pass ag-gag laws. These are laws that try to suppress whistleblowers, that they don't make animal cruelty a crime, they make documentation of animal cruelty a crime. And they've introduced literally dozens of these ag-gag bills across the country. And as an organization that conducts a lot of undercover investigations, HSUS is in a unique position to have to defend against these bills, use them as an opportunity to garner media attention on the fact that the meat industry has a lot to hide, obviously. But at the same time, we, are, we take the lead in trying to kill these bills. And just to give you an example, if... <clears throat> Uh, for example, last year in Nebraska, which is a very rural state, there was an ag-gag bill. And if the only people who had gone out and testified against it were uh, a bunch of vegans, uh, the chance of that bill being law now would be very high. However, uh, somebody who is um, a cattle rancher, uh, Kevin Fulton, in Nebraska went and testified against it, saying that he is a cattle rancher in Nebraska. He opposes this bill, and other ranchers do too, because it makes the it makes them makes the whole industry look bad, and so on. And Kevin is routinely in the press advocating against factory farming, advocating against ag-gag, and so on. And you know, those are the kind of people who make very good allies. Kevin is a great ally for um, for these efforts, and. While there may be some people in the animal movement who feel uncomfortable having a cattle rancher speaking out against ag-gag, um, the fact is that it's effective in helping to kill that, those bills. I mean, that's, what, that's just the fact of it. And if you want to kill ag-gag bills, then you should think about what are the ways that we can do it. And so one way is by working with farmers who share our position on ag-gag. It doesn't mean by working with somebody that you're going to agree with them 100% of the time, but you're never going to agree with anybody 100% of the time. And if you can agree with somebody on 80% of the time, even 60% of the time, that's probably somebody who you ought to be working with. And so I'm not in favor of a type of orthodox and insular approach to animal advocacy where you have to pass a litmus test of purity in order to advocate for animals. If there are pig farmers who oppose gestation crates and want to argue that they ought to be criminalized, I'm all for letting them go up and be a spokesperson for those type of legislative efforts. That's a great, uh, a great idea. So to that extent, uh, you mentioned uh, one, you referenced one person, Joe Maxwell at HSUS. Joe is a former politician. He was the lieutenant governor of Missouri. He's an attorney who has a law practice and his brother runs a uh, pig farming co-op that Joe has a stake in. 
And so while Joe is uh, largely somebody who is in the world of politics and, and law, uh, he does have that family connection there. And largely what he does is, um, on this particular front, um, is work with farmers who agree with certain key parts of HSUS's efforts to end battery cages and gestation crates and tail docking and force feeding for foie gras and so on, and promote the reduction of meat consumption as well. These folks are out there talking about why Americans are eating too much meat, how they should be eating less meat, and that's a good message for people to hear from uh, people who are involved in the farming business. So, you know, there are people who are going to be uncomfortable with that. There's no doubt about it, and I don't think that every group needs to be doing it. I'm sure most groups uh, aren't going to be doing it. But to the extent that we can work with people who have uh, a common cause with us on a variety of matters that are important to waging and winning campaigns for farm animals, I'm happy to be doing it. To put it simply, if if one of the missions of the HSUS is to reach out to farmers and work with farmers to improve the lives of other animals, mm -hmm. who, who better to have in a position of reaching out to farmers than a farmer that's going to be listened to? Yeah, I totally agree with you, Carolyn. There's no doubt about it that um, just in the same way that a vegan would probably be more receptive to hearing from other vegans, farmers are going to be more receptive to hearing from other farmers. And we're interested in improving the lot of farm animals, including by having farmers working with other farmers to raise the standard of care for those animals. And whether that is working just on their farms or working at the public policy level or working to encourage meat reduction, these are folks who can be very effective at advancing the campaigns that many animal advocates uh, support. Yeah, look, I, I absolutely I agree with you. I can completely understand that. Like you say, a lot of people may not agree with the policy of farmer outreach at all, but it is one of the HSUS's policies. And I think the way that it's being done is the most effective way that it can be done. I certainly hope so. I mean, I don't know. I always think that we can strive to do better. I always think that we can always be searching for continuous improvement. So if there are ways to do it better, I'm, I'm certainly all ears. Uh, it's not a part of HSUS that I have any oversight of. It's not a part of the organization that's within my domain. Um, it's, but at the same time, it is something that I think, just like with anything that we're doing, uh, we should always be striving for continuous improvement. Absolutely, I agree. Thanks, Paul. Paul, um, in the same Washington Post article that we've mentioned a couple of times now, you're quoted as saying, uh, I think in reference to the general public who are, who are neither vegan nor vegetarian, you say, this isn't a matter of stopping these sadists from harming animals, because most of the time they aren't sadists. Does the same hold true for people who work on farms or own farms and in slaughterhouses? I think it does. There's no doubt that there are sadists who are involved in, in these industries at some points. Um, but at the same time, most of the people who work in these industries, it's not like they go into this work because they want to harm animals. They're not thinking to themselves, oh, I want to go work in a slaughter plant because I really love sticking it to animals. They're in it because it's a bad job. They can't get some. They can't get other work. Very few people want to do these jobs. In fact, oftentimes these facilities have over 100% turnover in any given year. <clears throat> Very dangerous work. 
And yes, sometimes you're going to have people who take out their frustrations on animals. Sometimes you're going to have people who take pleasure in harming animals. Uh, in the, those cases, by definition, they would be sadists. But a lot of the times, it's just people who are down on their luck working these jobs. And I don't want to blame them, these, the workers there, just because they're in these jobs um, for policies that they probably had nothing to do with. For example, a worker on a pig farm likely had nothing to do with the fact that that pig farm decided to use gestation crates to lock their pigs up. That's a policy decision made by the executives of the company who should be held uh, morally responsible for it, not the workers. But to the extent that workers are um, you know, engaged in sadistic abuse of animals, of course, I think that they ought to be charged with crimes. And that's what's happened in time and time again from HSUS's undercover investigations and that of other organizations, too. When the individuals who work on these farms, who are often exploited and oppressed in horrible ways themselves, are found to have acted in a criminal way towards the um, other animals under their control, does the solution to the problem end with the arrest and conviction of those humans? Um, so, like, is, is stopping a few so-called bad apples any sort of victory for other animals or, in fact, a victory for anyone? Well, I, I do think it's somewhat of a victory, but at the same time, it's ignoring the larger problem that is at hand, because oftentimes we're not talking about just a few bad apples. We're talking about standard industry practices that are really bad. And so the industries recognize that we are mainly campaigning not against the individual cases of cruelty, but rather standard industry practices that are themselves cruel. And that's why it's important for these cases to see justice, not just with regard to individual workers who may have committed crimes, but also for the management of these companies who oftentimes we've found are aware of and sometimes even complicit in the crimes. And also for these companies to recognize that it's not in their financial interest to allow such egregious abuse. So let me give you an example. HSUS did an undercover expose at a dairy cow slaughter plant in Southern California. That was one of the biggest suppliers of meat to the federal school lunch program. When the footage went public, yes, a manager and a worker were, um, were charged and ended up being convicted of animal cruelty. At the same time, the operation was shut down by USDA. They lost so many of their contracts that they ended up going bankrupt. And the uh, executives were brought before the Congress and had to testify. It was a very bad day for them. And uh, Department of Justice came in and sued them for making false claims to the government because they were selling the government this meat and they were making claims about the humane treatment of farm animals that turned out to be untrue. And so it's a good example of where individuals who are personally responsible for egregious cruelty to animals were held accountable, but so were the executives. And in fact, the entire company went bankrupt. I guess the issue I take with it is um, if these, pe these people are just meeting a demand and although what they do is, is most certainly wrong and it's most certainly unacceptable. I think sometimes it's easy to put all of the blame on, on these people mm -hmm. and, and, and sort of not accept any of the responsibility ourselves as a species for what's going on. Oh, I totally agree with you, Carolyn. I, I totally agree with you. We should not put all of the blame on them. Uh, some of it maybe, but certainly not all of it. 
And yes, there is a larger societal issue that's at hand here that if you didn't have such sky high demand for meat that we have in the Western world, especially in the United States, which eats more meat per person than essentially any other nation on earth, you would not see a lot of uh, the cruelties that you see on some of these exposés. So at the same time, um, I think that farm animals have so little legal protection that the little amount of legal protection they do have when somebody violates those protections that they have, that there ought to be justice meted out. Um, but with the recognition that there often is a larger societal issue at hand, too. Sure. Um, Paul, could you give some examples of the reform of animal husbandry that HSUS has supported and explain how it might have been successful, please? Sure. Well, I think what we may be most well known for are campaigns to end the extreme confinement of farm animals in cages. So we have waged both ballot initiatives, legislative campaigns, litigation campaigns, and corporate campaigns to get chickens and pigs out of cages and into a higher welfare environment where by no means is it necessarily going to be old McDonald's farm where they're out on a pasture and nobody's going to look at it and say that, um, you know, hey, this is 100% cruelty-free, but it is better. So much of social progress, whether for animals or otherwise, occurs incrementally. And this is an improvement in the treatment of animals. And it's important for farm animals that they gain more protection, recognizing that oftentimes progress does beget progress. So whether it is California's Proposition 2 campaign that we waged in 2008 and that will take effect this upcoming January 1st, 2015, that made California the first state in our country to ban battery cages for laying hens, or whether it's persuading companies like McDonald's and Burger King to get rid of gestation crates in their supply chain, or whether it is waging campaigns to ban the tail docking or the tail cutting of dairy cows, these are efforts that I think we're perhaps most well-known for on that respect. At the same time, while improving the treatment of animals is very important, so is reducing demand for animal exploitation. That's why HSUS has a very serious team that goes around the country and works with uh, school districts to implement meat-free Mondays or other meat reduction programs that help reduce demand for meat by millions and millions of meals. Just to give one example, the Los Angeles School District, which is the second largest in the country, after working with HSUS for the last couple years, every Monday it serves exclusively meat-free fare. That's over half a million fewer meat-based meals every single week being served just by that one advancement alone. You know, you look at these and you recognize that there are two sides of the same coin improving the treatment of farm animals and reducing demand for farm animal exploitation. I think the, the uh, effect of normalizing a meat-free um, meal for children is can't be underestimated. Yeah, Tim, you're totally right. So it's not just the reduction in demand for meat that comes about from these policies at the school district level, although that is a great end in and of itself, but the fact that these kids are learning that a meal does not need to include meat, that a meal can be vegetarian and be perfectly satisfying, perfectly delicious, and perfectly healthy. These schools oftentimes also use HSUS posters throughout the cafeteria and other parts of the school about meat-free eating. 
sometimes our literature as well. We've also brought celebrities into these schools to do press conferences with HSUS and with the school district about why they're engaging in meat-free Mondays or in other uh, meat reduction strategies. So there's a whole campaign that goes around this. It's not simply changing the menus of school districts. It's also working with them to help students, uh, like you said, Tim, normalize the concept of meat-free eating and publicize that idea as well. One of the criticisms of that type of advocacy about the, the school having just be, being vegetarian for one day a week is that becoming vegetarian as opposed to becoming vegan can often be looked at as causing more harm because it's said that people who stop eating other animals and but only become vegetarian will increase their intake of, of cheese and, and dairy and eggs. Do you have an opinion on that? There's a lot to be said on this. However, um, you know, first off, let's just say that a school district goes from having pepperoni pizza to having regular pizza. Uh, obviously, the gain is is uh, very good because it's they would have been using cheese anyway, and now they're also not using pepperoni instead. So that is one example where uh, there's a, a good outcome that is better than what would have otherwise happened. At the same time, a lot of these schools are doing things like serving bean burritos or three bean chili and other uh, dairy-free items. However, just to be clear, there's no doubt that egg-laying hens and dairy cows are treated very poorly. At the same time, let's put this in perspective, nearly all of the animals who are raised for food, probably nine out of ten of them, are raised for meat production, not for egg or milk production. And so when people cut out eating animal meat, they're cutting out probably 90% of their animal usage right there. So just to put it in perspective, one dairy cow in the United States produces milk for approximately 30 people. When you look at it, per capita consumption, just on average about 30 people. So 30 people stopping drinking milk for a year would spare theoretically one cow from being used in the dairy industry. For egg-laying hens, it's about one hen per person in the United States. So for every one person who stops eating eggs altogether, there's uh, theoretically one fewer hen in, a, in the egg industry. Whereas if somebody stops eating chicken meat, just as an example, there's about 30 fewer chickens who will be um, theoretically used by the meat industry. So when we're talking about harm, clearly the most important thing in this respect is to get people reducing their chicken and turkey consumption uh, because that'll spare the greatest number of animals. And uh, there's other ways to reduce harm too, like, for example, not eating eggs or drinking milk and so on. But as Nick Cooney points out in his great book, Veganomics, which I highly recommend for those who have not read it, uh, check out Nick Cooney's Veganomics, that Somebody who becomes a vegetarian, even if they do increase their consumption of eggs or milk, which it's not clear that that actually happens, but even if they did, they're still doing better than if they maintained the status, uh, the status quo of the standard American diet. And I think once they become vegetarian, they're more likely to take a step further, aren't they? Because they, they look upon themselves as the type of person who cares about other animals and the type of person who takes action for other animals. Yeah, I mean, how many people do you know who are vegan who became vegan without becoming vegetarian first? It's so exactly. rare. It's yeah. it's so rare to meet people who are like that. I certainly didn't. I mean, I had a few weeks in between doing it, but most people I know 
Uh, for example, my brother uh, was years before between becoming a vegetarian and becoming a vegan, and I doubt that most vegans would have become vegan if they weren't vegetarian first. Exactly, yes. Thanks, Paul. Paul, I'd like to ask you, um, it's, it's a long question about the Federal Hen Protection Bill that I believe was negotiated uh, between the HSUS and the United Egg Producers. Um, at least that's the way that it, it's reported as having come about. And Great. the HSUS has, they've, they've come under fire, as I'm sure you know, for many vocal people within the movement. And, um, for example, because... Uh, there's an accusation that the HSUS has flip-flopped and caused other groups, such as the uh, Compassion Over Killing and others, to go from adamantly opposing so-called enriched cages to flip-flopping now all of a sudden overnight to supporting enriched cages because the, because the UEP was on board with it all of a sudden. And so there's there's an idea out there that that it was it was duplicitous in some way. But you know, the HSUS was was abandoning its principles just to make a deal and it was a deal that was bad for the chickens. And they go on to say and who gives the HSUS the right to negotiate on behalf of the animal rights movement and the chickens? Who 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 put you guys in charge of doing this? So I'm wondering if you can talk about how that happened and what your take on it is. Great. I would love to talk about it because I have devoted two decades of my life to trying to help egg-laying hens, whether it was conducting undercover investigations and open rescues more than a decade ago at battery egg farms inspired by the work of Patty Mark in Australia, whether it was while at COK campaigning to get uh, egg retailers like grocery chains to stop selling battery eggs or whether at HSUS to pass laws like Prop 2 in California. And now with this, um, my, you know, my, most of my life has been devoted to trying to help these birds because egg-laying hens are the most abused of the farm animals. And they have very few advocates, relatively speaking, compared to other animals in our society. And they deserve protection. So let's take a look at this. In 1999, the European Union banned barren battery cages. Much of the world of animal advocates celebrated this as a historic victory for farm animals to see egg-laying hens have the standard practices in the egg industry become banned. It's a very long phase-out period and didn't end up taking effect until the year 2012. And then the groups that were involved in that, all groups that opposed cages for laying hens, even though that law did not ban cages for laying hens, it banned barren battery cages for laying hens, uh, those groups heralded the beginning of 2012 as saying this is a, a great victory for animals. In the United States, there is no federal protection for any farm animals while at the farm level, none. There's not one law, not the Animal Welfare Act, not the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, um, not the 28-hour law, all of these laws, there's no law that relates to the treatment of farm animals while they're at the farm level, meaning 99% of their lives. As well, there's essentially no federal law that protects chickens used for food at all, since they are largely interpreted to be exempted from the federal laws that relate to the treatment of animals in slaughter plants and transport. So chickens, especially egg-laying hens, have essentially no federal legal protection if they're being used for food. So here's an opportunity to move the ball forward for them. 
to get them similar, a similar law that was heralded by the animal movement in Europe, although this was a far more progressive law than Europe's law. It went much further than Europe's law did um, in terms of more space, in terms of a labeling program that was very important from an animal perspective and, and so on. And here's a chance to actually get that for all 300 million laying hens in the country. And the only reason it didn't become law is because the beef and the pork industries were so opposed to it that they killed it. They figured if there was going to be anti-cruelty laws for at the federal level for chickens, next there would be pigs and cattle. And so for anybody who opposes this law, just recognizing that the, it was killed by the beef and the pork lobby, I think should be um, illustrative. As well, every, essentially every animal group that works on legislative campaigns for chickens supported it, whether it was Mercy for Animals, Compassion Over Killing, Animal Legal Defense Fund, <clears throat> um, Compassion in World Farming, the ASPCA, uh, HSUS, and more. So while it's true that HSUS largely negotiated this agreement with the United Egg Producers, uh, what's also true is that essentially every farm animal group that works at the legislative level for chickens was back backed this effort. And now here's the reason to back it. There isn't a better plan. That really is what it comes down to. Anybody could look at this law and say, hey, it doesn't go far enough. And of course it doesn't. There's no, I, I'll say anywhere, the law does, that law, if it had become law, it doesn't go far enough. At the same time, there isn't a better plan. People who opposed this said, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't good, but they didn't offer an alternative plan because there isn't one. The fact is that the big egg production states, states like Iowa, Indiana, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Texas, and so on, where huge amounts of the laying hen populations are, don't allow for ballot initiative, so we couldn't do anything like Prop 2 there. If anything, those states are more likely to pass an ag-gag law than they are to ban cages for laying hens. And so we don't have a way to help those birds legislatively. The hundreds of millions of birds who are in these states that don't allow for ballot initiatives, there's not a way to help them. And so anybody who celebrates that this law, that this bill was killed by the beef and the pork lobby is celebrating the fact that hundreds of millions of birds in these states are going to be locked in battery cages for who knows how long uh, because of the failure of this bill to become law. And so if there was another effort that would get birds more, I would happily devote my life to it. If there was some other plan that somebody could put forth that would say this has a chance of passing and that this would do more for laying hens than that bill would have achieved, I would gladly have given up that effort and gone over and pursued this other effort. But unfortunately, there isn't another plan. Egg-laying hens have been dealt a very bad hand in life, a terrible hand, and you've got to play that hand the best that you can for them. But in this case, there was a real opportunity. There's a real opportunity to significantly move the ball forward to get the first ever federal on-farm legal protection for any farm animals in the U.S., let alone chickens who have so little protection that would affect the lives of hundreds of millions of animals in states where we have essentially no hope of getting them anything now, legislatively speaking. So uh, it's not like all hope is lost. There's other avenues that we can do um, at the state level or at the corporate level to help some animals here, some animals there, maybe even millions of animals at a time but probably not hundreds of millions of animals at a time. So I don't know if that's helpful for you, Tim, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about it more too. But that, in a nutshell, is the reason why so many groups that work on farm animal legislation were enthusiastic about this bill. So I just wanted to 
ask a couple of brief points. I know we've been going sure. on with the interview for a long time, but hey, just for right. clarification. Hey, okay. I, hey man, I got, so, I'm thrilled to be doing the interview, so don't rush. Okay, <laughs> good. Okay. So the as I understand it, the the uh, the federal legislation would act, would actually have have cleared up some of the language that could be ambiguous in interpretation of the California legislation, so that the uh, the definition of how much size that, a, that that each bird was supposed to have was made clear in this federal legislation, where it wasn't quite clear in the California legislation. Is that right? Well, that that is one benefit from the egg producers' perspective. The egg producers in California feign ignorance about what Prop Two means. They didn't have any doubts about it during the campaign in 2008. Right. But, but now they've feigned ignorance about. What it means, and so the federal bill would have had a clearer um, definition in terms of providing number of square inches that really is is less than what we would argue the California law is. So the difference is that we would argue that the California law is a higher standard in terms of space, not in terms of the other provisions of the federal law, but in terms of space, a higher right. standard. But the benefit of the federal bill is that you get all fifty states, not just one state. Right. So yes, in, right. in some and, respect, yeah. Right, and the and the and the important part about it being all fifty states, well, the important part about clarifying the space is because in order in order for that matter to be settled in California, it would result in litigation, right? Costly, time-consuming litigation. Yeah, there have been. Is that right? Yeah, there have been a number of lawsuits filed by egg producers, both in and outside of California, on this and other topics relating to the Prop Two battle. And fortunately, we have prevailed 100% of the time on the numerous lawsuits that have been filed since 2008 on this topic. But you never know what's going to happen. In fact, the uh, California Department right. of Food and Agriculture has now promulgated regulations. Uh, on relatedly that offer a very anemic standard for egg producers to follow that's more anemic than um, than the federal bill would have been. It's just a, right. a a very sad situation. The other the other thing that the federal bill was supposed to eliminate, if I understand it correctly, was that the problem. And I think that this may have been settled just recently in California, but there there was a real issue as to whether or not uh, the standards that were set for California would apply to all eggs sold in California, not just all eggs produced in California. So a producer of eggs could produce their eggs under horrific conditions in uh, Nebraska and ship the eggs into California. So the population of California is still buying eggs from from places that are that are not meeting any of the standards of California under under Prop 2. But this national bill was supposed to level a playing field, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah. So basically, after Prop 2 passed in 2008, we passed a subsequent law in 2010 in California that said, if you want to sell eggs in California, uh, if you want to sell shell eggs in California, you have to uh, comply with the standards of Prop 2. And uh, about a half dozen states recently sued California, saying that this was a violation of the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. And just this past week, a federal judge dismissed their lawsuit, saying that they didn't even have standing to sue, which means that somebody else could still come in and sue um, just because these plaintiffs didn't have standing to sue. Other plaintiffs could presumably come in and sue. And so you're right that it isn't to some degree been settled by this dismissal, that there's no longer active litigation on it. But yes, the federal bill would have avoided this altogether because there's no claim 
of constitutional issues on that, to my knowledge. And so that, that would have also um, probably had a, a clearer pathway than we had on this. But right now, things are looking very optimistic on that point about the sales provision taking effect on January 1st. And so the laws in California will affect not only the 19 million egg-laying hens in California, but also probably at least another 10 million birds uh, whose eggs are sold into California because those producers want to engage in commerce in the California market, which of course they're not forced to do. Nobody's forced to sell their eggs to California, but if they want to sell to California, they need to comply with California standards. Okay. And there's, this is my, this is my last question on this. So one of the, one of the things that has been said, which I think is wrong is that they, people have said, Oh, well, this national legislation were it to pass, it would prevent any movement forward for the for chickens ever this is the last word on <laughs> on cages for chickens yeah. so can you dispel that myth yeah so you're absolutely right that some have claimed this and there are people who are um, largely unfamiliar with the way that law works in fact the main proprietor of this is a group that has never passed any law for um, for chickens or related to the confinement of farm animals ever the fact is that if you look at um, any federal law relating to animals, the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, the Animal Welfare Act, these laws have been amended and improved upon many times that laws are not etched in stone. We're not talking about a constitutional amendment here. We're talking about a statute that could be revisited at a later date. And the reality is that, not to be a broken record, but the states where most of the egg-laying hens are in already are in the position that like a de facto position of what you were just describing that there isn't a chance to help them legislatively you're not going to go to iowa and persuade lawmakers there to ban cages for laying hens iowa lawmakers a couple years ago passed an ag gag law to make it a crime to engage in undercover investigations at egg and other agribusiness facilities so this was an attempt to get some type of legal protection for animals all across the country, including in states where they really are essentially legislatively hopeless. But at the federal level, these laws can be amended. They can be improved upon. And in fact, most of the federal laws relating to animals have been time and time again throughout the history of their implementation. Great. Thanks for the clarification. I'm just, and just just one, one, <laughs> sure. one, I said that was the last yeah, question, but I lied. There's, there's one more. I'm just curious. I, I think I know the answer to this. Is there any group in the country that does more on the legislative front for animals than HSUS, whether Certainly at the state not. level or at the at – the, yeah, okay. Thank you. No. Uh, HSUS has state directors in nearly all 50 states who, among other things, they have many other responsibilities, but among those other responsibilities are lobbying in the state capitol to help advance the interests of animals, passing laws to protect animals from abuse and killing laws that would be um, promoting animal abuse. I think one of the criticisms from vegans in regard to the bill is that um, – I think it's really difficult to accept the conditions that the hens would continue to live in. I mean, yeah. live, living in, on cage floors and still having their beaks ripped off and never, mm -hmm. ever being able to flap their wings. Things like that are just... It's, it's really difficult to accept that that's the future. But I, it's easy to sort of think, 
well, we just have to get everybody to go vegan. Then there will be, be, <laughs> yeah. be no need for, for egg laying hens. There will be no, well, no one will yeah, want I mean, to eat look, eggs. But... It's easy to point out where the bill does not go far enough. But what... Exactly, yeah. And I right. think... It's easy to point out where the bill doesn't go far enough, but it's very difficult to point out how to get something more for them. I mean, it, like I said, if somebody could show, hey, here's a way to get a bill passed to become law that would prohibit the types of abuses that you were referring to, let us know about it or, or go do it yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking to you, Derek. I'm talking to the hypothetical person making that argument. You know, go, go do it yourself or let us know about it. Um, I'm all ears. There's nobody who wants to get more for farm animals than I do. So um, if there are ways to get more for them legislatively than what we've been doing, I'm eager to hear about them. Look, yeah, I agree. And as you say, there's, there have been no alternatives offered. And um, you wrote somewhere that these hens are suffering terribly. And, you know, they, each one of these hens is an individual. And the most important thing to that individual is how she fares in the world. Think about it from the perspective of somebody on an airplane. These airlines charge $50 for six extra inches of legroom for a flight that's only going to be a few hours. And a lot of people do it. They choose to pay that extra money. And imagine if it wasn't just a few extra inches, but it was double the amount of space that you had. And it wasn't just for a few hours, but it was for the rest of your entire life. That's the type of situation that hens find themselves in where they're suffering in these horrendous conditions for their entire life. And we have an opportunity to essentially double the amount of space that they're getting. That's not a small amount. Do they deserve more than that? Of course. But if we can get them that, it's a pretty good improvement. And it's something that I would be willing to fight very hard for I agree with you, Paul. We actually spoke with Bruce Friedrich about this um, not long after the details of the bill were announced, and, and I really um, appreciated the way Bruce framed it. He said that these um, the new colony cages, they're not humane. They're not good. They're not a victory. They're horrific, but they're less horrific than the barren battery cages were. They are an improvement, and unless there are other alternatives that can improve the lives of the hens further... Right. Yeah, that's the constant question we have to ask ourselves is, it, could we be getting more? And, you know, somebody like Bruce, who you mentioned, is a good example of this. Bruce spent over a year in federal prison, and he regularly talks about the fact how, yeah, he wishes that he wasn't in prison at all, but he knew that it was inevitable that he was going to be there for at least a year, and that he really valued having more space or having access to mail or having um, an extra blanket these are the things that Bruce talks about as improvements that were really important to him when he was incarcerated. And of course, I think it's hard to, uh, it, it can sometimes be hard to extrapolate what we would want compared to what a chicken or a pig may want, but certainly they don't want to be overcrowded to the point where they can barely move an inch. And I think that Bruce's own personal experience is illustrative of that example. Do you think that there might be a very real risk that even if people take on board the message of abolishing the worst practices of animal agriculture in general, do you think that there might be a risk that many people will continue to eat other animals and that in, well, order, in order to supply that demand, factory farms simply have to exist? Um, you know, most people don't hesitate to eat animal products right now. 
and that is with animals enduring the most torturous conditions that are imaginable. I mean, it's hard to think of something more torturous than battery cages or gestation crates for chickens and pigs, as an example. And the fact that the animals are so tormented still doesn't stop most people from eating them. So I'm not so sure that people are just sitting around looking for that excuse. They don't really need that excuse uh, in, in their own eyes. At the same time, interestingly, the countries that have the strongest farm animal protection laws tend to also have the highest rates of vegetarianism. And we've also <clears throat> seen the meat industry's own economic analyses of this. They believe that these laws cause people to eat less meat, not to eat more meat. Um, as well, if you look at some of the psychological research, research that uh, Nick Cooney talks about in his book, Veganomics, even for people who do consciously switch to these higher animal welfare products, they oftentimes are going to be more likely to keep on moving in the right direction, meaning eating less and less meat than otherwise, than they would have otherwise, because they start seeing themselves as the type of person that cares about uh, farm animals. So to me, these all seem like good positive signs in the right direction. There doesn't appear to be a lot of evidence the other way uh, in the way that you were describing it. It, it appears that the evidence is, is to the contrary. At least from the meat industry's point of view, they do think that these efforts reduce meat consumption and that people who start moving in that direction will tend to reduce their, their consumption even further. We could speak with you and ask you questions all day. For our final question, though, is there anything that we've not thought to ask you that you'd like to mention to our listeners? Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that whatever disagreements there may be in our movement, let's keep in mind that you know, this is a team and you're not always going to agree with all of your teammates, but the meat industry, the factory farming industry, they are attacking us so ruthlessly that it's, it's going to be a better idea for us to focus our attention on them than it is on each other. You know, sometimes I may see an animal group that uh, is doing something that I wish they'd be doing differently, but you're not going to find me going in publicly uh, condemning them. What you'll find me doing is leading by example. And if people like the work that we're doing, then they can do it. If they don't like the work they're doing, they can do something else and lead by example themselves. Because this is the social justice struggle that's going to be ongoing for many, many years to come. I mean, what we're trying to do is something that is so historic. I mean, we're trying to change the relationship between humans and other animals that has existed for millennia, one of violence and domination. You know, this relationship has been characterized by violence and domination for so long, and what we're trying to do is change it to one that's based upon compassion and respect. That's not an easy thing to accomplish. There will be a lot of disagreements about how best to do it, and we're all working in the ways that we think are going to have the best possible outcome for animals. So uh, I would take a, a note of hopeful humility in recognizing that maybe we don't have all the answers, that maybe there are ways that we could be doing things better as a movement. Maybe some organizations should be doing things differently. But we're all sitting here trying to wage and win campaigns that will advance the interests of animals the best. And there's very little that the meat industry loves more than seeing animal groups attacking one another rather than attacking them. And so to the extent that we are able to uh, have campaigns focused on advancing the interests of animals rather than just savaging fellow animal protection groups, I think animals would be very much better off.
I think that's wonderful and very helpful advice, Paul. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and hear your thoughts. And I'd also like to thank you for all that you continue to do on behalf of both humans and other animals. That's very kind of you, Carolyn and Tim. Thank you both very much. It's an honor to be on with you, and I will look forward to continued conversations, hopefully in the future. Thank you for listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.